Well, hello, everybody. This is Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio, and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings the SaaS experts to you to help us understand where we are today and what's happening tomorrow. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome a guest who I've known now for 11 years, Thomas Law, who is one of the co-founders and, and overseers of the Technology Services Industry Association. Been there for the last 18 years, also a professor at Ohio State for about 10 years. We won't talk about the game, Thomas. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> started his career at SGI, Silicon Graphics, and just has this fascinating story. And so, Thomas, I'd like to spend just a little time talking about your background. But for people on the podcast, just want to say you got to check out TSIA if you're in subscription businesses. It really is an incredible industry. The books, Thomas has written seven books and has about 350 companies that are broadly involved with TSIA on their platform. But they have about 1,500 people that attend their conferences two times per year. I've been several times. Every time I've been, I've learned something. And so, Thomas, congratulations on all your success. The fact you've written seven books, we were joking. I I can't even get my first book out. Uh, So, you know, (laughs) well done on that. Can you give a little bit of background in terms of how you, your journey from SGI into TSIA? And, And then we'll talk a little bit about the state of the SaaS business models, what the impact is for specific B2B companies, and then a special metric you guys have developed, the rule of 35, not to be confused with the rule of 40. Yeah, so my background, how I ended up the chair I'm sitting in now, I actually started back in the 90s at Silicon Graphics, uh, you know, right before the big dot-com boom there. And uh, I started in IT, but then I got recruited to help start a consulting business. And so I spent about five years uh, helping to build a consulting business embedded. And when I left... SGI, one of the executives there said, look, you should write a book about what you just did because it's hard to build consulting within a product company, as you know. And I said, like, I've never read a book before. I don't know how to get it published. And he said, no, I, I've got connections. Let's, you should do it. So I did. I, I took time. I wrote a book. It got published. I started to interview to go uh, back into an operational role. And uh, suddenly my phone just started ringing when the book came out and people said, hey, did you work at our company? And I'm like, no, why? Because everything you're describing is exactly what we're dealing with here at our company on PS. So, so I started working on a second book. And when I was working on that, J.B. Wood, who's the CEO of, of TSIA, gave me a call and he said, hey, man, I'm going to start this, this association model. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. And he goes, oh, let's give it a try. So we took a run up the hill and I've been doing it you know, 18 years and it's just been a great way to drive you know, data and insights for the industry. So I really enjoy what I'm doing. Well, that's great. And then I remember coming to you in 2012, having been at Salesforce, which is clearly a subscription business model and Mark Benioff and all that he did in terms of championing it as uh, both a software as a distribution model through the cloud, but then also the monetization um, uh, from CapEx to OpEx. And I remember my first conference with you all, I think you said something like 40% of the companies, uh, broadly software companies were cloud-based, 60% were still on-prem. And this was back in 2012. Over the last 11 years, what have you seen uh, how has that transformation continued to unfold and what's the current state in terms of on-prem versus cloud native? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, so you, you really, if you think about software companies right now, if we just focused on them, there's, there's really three profiles right now. There are the born in the cloud companies like a Salesforce. And the, the key thing there is they've always been in the cloud, which means they're connected to all their customers, right? The customers are all on a common platform and they have this recurring business model, right? Pricing model. The other extreme are software companies that are still basically, you know, on-prem. 
uh, disconnected from their customers and they have a you know still a, a traditional license and maintenance model so there's still a few of those out there that's, that's definitely the minority percentage now i would say that the biggest chunk is in the middle and what you see is a lot of legacy software companies whether you pick uh, an oracle an sap uh, whoever it doesn't matter and what they've done is they've moved their pricing models to recurring right so they have a lot of subscription revenue so if you look at their 10ks you'll see, you'll you'll see you know these big growing subscription revenue streams underneath the covers some of that is coming from true saas but there's still a lot of on-prem out there that is simply in a recurring business model now. And so I, I put that on the table because there is a lot of the software industry that still has to you know, eat through what we call this financial fish of moving from an on-prem model to a SaaS model. Because I think there's no doubt that's the winning distribution model. I think you, you would agree. I mean, for, for customers, you know, I mean, any you know, software company that was started after 2006, I mean, they're not building on-prem software they're building it in the cloud so but there's still a lot of migration that that needs to occur underneath the covers do you have a general sense from the people you talk to in the tracking of the industry as you do in terms of the split in terms of percentage of software companies that are now born in the cloud versus on-prem uh, legacy on-prem versus hybrid yeah I, I i don't know the exact percentage i mean we you know there's still you know there's a lot of software that is under, uh, you know, these big legacy companies have been around for a while who have big install bases. So that's probably still the biggest percentage is with these companies that are in that hybrid mode, right? They've got customers in, in on-prem, they've got customers in SaaS. I'd, I'd say they probably own the majority of, of the market still, um, followed by the pure born in the cloud companies. You know, and again, what that exact breakdown is, I'm not sure. Yeah. I remember uh, Steve Bomber talking um, and having this debate about the private versus public cloud. And, and that whole playing out of, are you going to have your own servers for some um, service that you're offering versus being in the cloud? And uh, clearly it was his um, motivation was transparent for why he was advocating for that. But then you have Satya come in, who then goes all in on Azure. I just such what's a transformation of the public cloud, right? Public cloud thinking. And he came out of the developer database uh, division. And uh, I, I left before he joined. Radical transformation, even in the short time he's been there around the entire business model of, of Microsoft. Yeah, no, you know, it is interesting that in that debate in some ways still continues in terms of public versus private, you know, whether you're, you're worried about security, whether you're worried about, you know, intellectual pro whatever. And so, so that still goes on. What's interesting is, we, again, you think about this migration, you see a lot of traditional software companies when they start to first move customers to more of a cloud posture, it's often in a managed service type of offer where they say, look, we'll build a cloud just for you, an instance just for you, and we'll manage it just that way. And they'll do that, right? So the customer is getting out of the business of owning infrastructure, they're getting the advantages of the cloud, but it's just for them. The only downside with that model is the economies aren't there <laughs> the way they are. I mean, the reason that the public cloud is so attractive is because of the economies. I mean, that's, that's why it becomes such a dominant model. Yeah. So speaking of kind of public companies, one of the things you guys do is you have your TSIA Cloud 40, which tracks uh, the state of, of the software companies that are the cloud, the top 40 public markets. And you have a lot of different insights. We focus primarily on private companies in our Maxio Institute growth report, 
looks at 2,000 companies and talks about what's happening and because we have the billing and invoicing data. And we were chatting in our pre-brief a little bit about what you saw happening in the broader Cloud 40 and wanted to um, give you a chance to talk about, well, what are you seeing? What's going on with growth and what's happening under the business model? Yeah, and, and I, I, I'm sure this, the things we're seeing in the public data, and we, we benchmark a lot of privately held smaller SaaS companies as well, their operating models. And I have a feeling that, you know, you and I are seeing the same things in our data sets, right? So so 2022 was a watershed year for SaaS companies, as you know, because it just was this cold bucket of water yeah. <laughs> that basically yeah. said growth at any cost is not okay anymore. And, and, and by, by the way, the Wall Street Journal today had a large article in the, in, the, in the business and finance section about the state of technology business models and, th- and reiterating this point that, that you know, tech companies are being way more cautious around their spend and how they grow and they're realizing they've got to do it more profitably. So, so that reality hit in 2022. And so if you move forward to what we're seeing now, you know, this year, we just took the Q3 snapshots. So we tracked 40 of the largest publicly traded cloud companies out there in this Cloud 40 index. And the good news is they're growing. On average, they're growing 14%. But I will tell you that's down from a couple of years ago when they were used to growing north of 20% on average, and some of them growing much you know, fa- faster. So there's been a slowdown in growth. The, the, the gross margins are improving because they are starting to really you know, get serious about cost. On average, SaaS companies are doing about 70% gross margin. That's gap gross margin. Um, their sales and marketing ex- expenses are, 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 are getting uh, chipped down. They used to be on average about uh, 40% a year ago for these companies down to 36%. That's not insignificant. So they're, so they're moving that. Those moves are helping improve their operating incomes. That's the good news. But, but on average, these companies are still, from a gap perspective, unprofitable. So it was about a negative 7% across the board there. And, you know, even... The largest SaaS companies in the world, like the Salesforce, is, you know, they, they are profitable now. They've really focused on that. But their profitability profile is still about half of what you used to get in an old traditional software business model, right? So if, if you know, if a traditional enterprise software company could throw off, you know, 20, 25 points of operating income, even these large, you know, well-managed SaaS companies are still only thrown off around 8, 10, if they're lucky, 12%. So it's, you know, it's a different model. And is that because I remember at Salesforce, this was years ago, was there like, yeah, we're not profitable now, but at any point we could be because we're going to stop spending on X and we have this recurring revenue and it's just going to continue to grow. So if we don't spend, you know, 80% of their revenue was booked because they had annual multi-year contracts. Is that still kind of the, the pixie dust yeah, yeah. I am so glad that you said this because I spent the last eight years of my life arm wrestling with SaaS executives about this very point, right? So the, the logic has always been, because we, we've been ringing the bell about SaaS profitability for quite a while because we've always believed at some point sort of the, you know, the music stops and you have to sit down on a chair that is a profitable business model, right? You just can't keep justifying, you know, hey, don't worry about it. Um, and so what has happened in 2022 proved it is the message came out loud and clear, hey, you have got to get more profitable to all these SaaS companies. And what they, you know, and I was talking to these executives, what they painfully realized is, okay, I can start to work my cost structure, but I can't cut sales and marketing in half to become profitable because where is my future growth coming from, <laughs> right? And so it was, you know, it was a bit of a red herring, right, that this argument. And so what you're seeing is they're chipping on it. They're getting sales and marketing to go down, just like Salesforce. They didn't, you know, cut things in half, but they, you know, so, so, you know, that was really, I, th- I think, a false narrative that has proven that, you know, that is just not what you can do. And it's going to take a lot more work 
for these companies to get into you know a profitable posture. Well, two thoughts on that. One is I just saw a recent article, literally, I think it came out yesterday or two days ago from TechCrunch that referred someone else and said there were 240,000 tech layoffs year to date, which is 50% more than all of 2022. 50% more than all of 2022. So we still have another month to go. There could be more layoffs. And I do think the early companies, you know, they lay off quickly. VCs are banging on them, extend their cash. And we're seeing big swaths of large companies doing it. To your point, Microsoft living, laying off 10,000 people is not a huge layoff as total absolute number of people being laid off it is, but they're doing this chip off, chipping, right? Like where can they trim? Yeah. Well, and I'm going to give you some numbers that are stunning and I'm glad that you brought this up. So, so this, what a lot of SaaS companies did in 2022 to basically start to write the ship is they said, well, the easiest thing to go after is headcount, obviously. So you start you start, you know, taking headcount out. But let me give you some numbers. So there's a website that tracks this on tech layoffs. During the dot-com bust, which you and I lived through, which, you know, I thought that was Armageddon when that happened, over a two-year two period, tech took out 300,000 jobs over two years. Okay, starting in 2022, and we're not even done with 2023, so not even a complete two years, tech has taken out almost a million jobs. Holy smokes. Yeah, it started in 2022. Like, because the numbers you're talking about are just this year to date. You got to go back to 2022. So, so you put those two things next to each other, the, you know, the dot com bust and this. Now, the, the talk track is, well, tech was bigger. We did a lot of overhiring. Yeah, but, you know, a million jobs is a million jobs. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of headcount that came out. And, I, you know, this is the third recession that you and I have been through. In 2021, I was at a company, uh, Avenue A, where one day we let go, we were 500 people, we went, let go. 250 the next day. So cut off 50%, but we're profitable the next day. And it's one of these lessons I've learned and held closely is um, the advantage of being profitable, right? You control your own fate being profitable. And I think that leads to this next conversation around the, 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 the rule of 40 and that there is a real difference between being 100% grower and 60% negative EBITDA versus a 40% grower and profitable because if the 100% wobbles at all, you have this enormous cost structure that you've got to take a care of. And, and if the market macroeconomic effects, you're screwed. And so do you have any thoughts on that? I know we're going to get to the TSIA rule of 35 in a second, but just on the, the uh, rule of 40 and how you're seeing that playing out for, for SaaS companies. Yeah. So what I think is, is interesting about the rule of 40. And so, you know, and it's an important rule, right? It basically, uh, investors have used it as a way to hold it up to a company and say, look, are, are you, you know, if you're growing 40% in your break even, that's okay, right? Like you said, if you're growing 60% and you're losing 20 points on operating income, that's okay, right? Because I mean, that was sort of a bumper that was used. But the crazy thing about it, and when you look at these companies in the TSI Cloud 40, again, some of the largest, you know, cloud-based companies on the planet, there's very few of them that are rule of 40 companies. And that has been true for several years. So it's almost become a myth. And so companies will say, well, I'm, I'm a rule of 40 company. And you look at it and you go, well, no, you're not. And then what they start doing is making up new uh, definitions for the rule of 40. Well, I'm rule of 40. If you take this out and you add this and you, you know, multiply this and you square this, look, I'm a rule of 40 company. So, so I think that it, to be honest with you, it, it's, it has lost it's it's value in the conversation number one because it's, it's just become so you know confusing in some ways you know so, so convoluted and you know go back to the article in the wall street journal today it's not what investors are focused on if you're growing 40 percent 
you know, or fifty percent, and you're losing ten points. Investors are concerned right now because money's not free anymore. So, so it's it's really hard to justify, right? That that high growth and just say, well, don't worry about me losing money. It's okay. It's like no, 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 no. It's not okay <laughs> because that that is expensive to fund that growth. Yeah, to that point, as a private guy, a private company guy, for most, I was public company for a little bit, but private company CEO, like my whole orientation in the in the age of free money was just about EBITDA. Yeah, but absolutely. then all of a sudden you got to say with high interest rates, you got to cover your interest nut. That's right. And, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to generate EBITDA to cover debt. That's a really That's different right. way. Even before you're investing in the business, you got to yep. cover your debt. And I think a lot of companies are taking debt. Equity is expensive. They took free debt and now they're paying the piper. They are. They are. And, and, and as I'm sure you're aware, maybe most of your listeners are, you know, your particular audience, but, you know, the tax rules changed as well in terms of how much of that debt, that interest rate you can write off. So it got even more expensive. <laughs> you had to pay this and then there wasn't this huge tax write off that you had you know, historically. Yeah, no, great. So as we shift, you know, there's the rule of 40 and then you guys just to make things complicated, introduce this TSIA rule of 35 and it's going to take a minute for you to explain it. And as we talked about it, I was like, gosh, that is a really compelling way of looking at the business. So could you talk through, uh, you know, rule of 40, why you thought you needed to introduce a new rule of 35 and what are some of the insights you're seeing from that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the reason we put this rule of 35 on the table a couple of years ago is to start to get the lens around the operational efficiency side, right? Because again, the rule of 40 is rewarding growth, but the question is, okay, but are you growing cost effectively? So the rule of 45 is, 35 is actually very, very simple. You just take your revenue, you know, 100%, here's my revenue, subtract the percentage of your revenue you're spending on the COGS, right? So to get that gross margin, if my gross margin is 70, that means I'm spending 30% on, on COGS and subtract how much you're spending on sales and marketing because those are the two big cost buckets, right? That are driving, you know, your efficiency, you know, your, your infrastructure cost, and then your sales and marketing. And you take those two out, you should have at least 35% of your revenue left and you're covering GNA, R&D and profitability, okay? It is just a, sort of a floor, right? Just a base to say, look, you know, that's where you should get to start to feel that you have a, an operationally effective SaaS business. And the reason that rule is so powerful is every quarter, and I do this in my public webinars on the on the you know th these indexes that we that we do that anybody can attend, is we put the rule of forty and the rule of thirty five together, and you we create this nice little two by two, and in the upper right hand corner are technology companies that are both rule of thirty five and rule of forty. And on the bottom left-hand corner are companies that are neither. And what I can tell you over the last two years is the companies that are rule of 35 companies, their valuations are holding up much better <laughs> than the companies that are in the bottom left. And the bottom left are all these SaaS companies that are no longer rule of 40 companies and they're operationally inefficient, right? They're not rule of 35 companies. And that's the one that investors, they're just pummeling them. We were chatting a little bit. It was interesting. I've written an article on the two metrics that investors and operators can agree on. And it's one of them is very similar to what you described. I got it from Battery and my uh, uh, general partner, Chelsea Stoner, beat this into me. Uh, it was that you, you have two engines. You have a cash engine and you have a growth engine. And the cash engine, the way they calculate it, slightly different, but same idea, is you take your gross margin, you actually subtract out G&A, R&D, and then you want to have what's left over is what you're willing to invest in growth. And that growth could either go to sales and marketing 
or it could go to a, a, a rainy day, or it could be your fun to you know, start building cash for M&A. So you have this cash engine and their targets were 30% minimum, 50% best in class. So 50 cents of every dollar after you covered COGS, GNA, and R&D, you could put into growth. And then the growth engine is another thing you got to get super clear about in terms of payoff and return. And uh, so two different ways to look at it. I'd love your rule of 35 and the plotting that you're done. And at the end of the, our podcast, we'll make sure people know how to get in touch with you and where to hear you talk about it, because it's super interesting to see that play out on the, as you, as you represent that and see it play out in the, in the public markets. And I do think it, it, it provides this great um, seesaw between the EBITDA growth and operating leverage. Talking about the growth engine, though, you have this really interesting metric that you guys use called RAC versus CAC. So can you introduce that metric and what you've seen, why that's helpful and why should people think about it? Well, I, you know, CAC is so interesting because it is so important, right? Our customer acquisition costs, what are we paying there to get a dollar of, of, of new revenue? It's been, you know, a foundational metric in SaaS companies forever. But I can tell you, and, you know, you've been in the chair CEO, you, you look across a lot of companies, a lot of companies struggle to really get their arms around that number. And so we, and we've tried to benchmark it for years and it's super noisy data, super noisy. So what we did is we created a proxy and we basically just said, okay, here's the simple math. Take how much you're spending on sales and marketing. So let's say you're a SaaS company and you're spending 40% of your revenue on sales and marketing. And let's divide that by your annual growth rate. So let's say you're a SaaS company, you're growing 40%. So 40 divided by 40, that's your revenue acquisition cost. And, And in that case, the number would be one. And the question is, okay, is that good, bad, or ugly? And we basically published that number every quarter, again, from the public data. And, and I can tell you right now from Q3, the average rack number for cloud companies is actually 2.84. So they're spending 2.84% of revenue to get 1% of, of growth. And the really important thing is that there are SaaS companies that their rack number is much lower than that. Salesforce, it's 1.24, right? It's less than half. Uh, ServiceNow, 1.72. Zscaler, 0.46. So, so what does that tell you? If you're a SaaS company and you can do this very simple rack calculation, you can compare yourself to public companies, your competitors, et cetera. If your rack number is higher than your competitors, you have a problem. You have a serious problem because you are, are not as efficient at generating revenue growth. And that's going to catch up with you. Right. I mean, you know, your ability to how much time and treasure you're going to have to spend to get market share, you are handicapped. And so it's again, I, I like it because you can use public data to, to look at it. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll also mention here is the rack numbers went down last year when people start whacking all their headcount and getting their costs. But they've been creeping back up. So SaaS companies are spending more and more, if you will to get that next dollar. And I think, you know, you probably talk to a lot of your customers. I know our members, they're feeling that sort of that headwinds of getting revenue. It's, it's harder. Yeah. I, so a couple of follow-up thoughts. One is under CAC. Yes, I agreed. I think uh, being cloud native, SaaS native, it, it's one of these metrics you've been hearing about forever. You should be, you can, you can use benchmarks out there. Ray Reich's benchmark study shows by size of company and your average ACV what a good CAC is. The only thing with CAC is it's, you can totally game it. You just go, you know, grab a bunch of new customers, 
right? And and uh, and it lowers your CAC for that quarter. And then and so you got you have to tie it in with churn and how much did you spend. The other thing I think the nuance that we talk about with CAC is being able to assign costs to drive new logos versus current customers. And so how do you think about new revenue versus expansion revenue? And in a recession time, it's often easier to to monetize your customer base. So how do you shift your marketing and sales and focus? Well, and just to pause on that one, so so we actually took a run up the hill several years ago. We put, we published a paper around what we called CAC, Keck, and Kirk. So what is that? CAC is is your acquisition of your new customers. Keck, customer um, expansion costs. How much are you spending to expand existing customers? And then Kirk was CRC, you know, customer retention costs. What do you spend on renewal dollars? And our argument was that CAC should be the highest, obviously. Right, Keck should be a little bit lower, and Kirk should be the lowest. But you know how many companies we found that actually did that analysis and understood those three buckets? It's the numbers close to zero, <laughs> right? So it's just again, just but that's the right way to think about it. Exactly what you just said is really dialing, getting those dials right, and saying, hey, I'm not just going to have this blunt instrument called CAC. I'm really going to be looking at you know, how much it's costing me to expand and renew because that's where the high margin dollars are for a SaaS company anyway, yeah, as you know. Yeah, totally. Not that you're intending that there's a total tee up for the Maxio advertisement is if when you have a system of record that's tracking your billing and invoicing and doing your rev rec, you can absolutely get those metrics. And, you know, you press the button on day one and it's and you get the ARR, you, you get the MRR schedule, you get the ARR waterfall, you get all of this insight by product, by segment, by customer, by region, and you're able to do all your customer cohort analysis. So we, it, it is really, uh, I mean, part of the reason I came to this company was because my last company, we were trying to get those metrics through Excel and Excel would bog down. Some would change the formula, it would blow up. And we were all, you know, a relatively small company. I can't even imagine what large companies do is with, you know, gigabytes of data, terabytes, whatever the biggest thing is of data, trying to make sense of it. It's just madness. And because there's no gap rules, it's all the wild, wild west. You kind of make it up on your own. Yeah, exactly. Which, which, you, you, well, you, and I'm curious, you and I didn't talk about this before, but I, I'm curious what you're seeing is, is, you know, if you think about SaaS companies, you think about SaaS CFOs, you know, I would say pre-2022, getting down to some of the nuanced metrics you're talking about was not a top of mind issue for a lot of these CFOs. It's not what they were focused on. And I was listening to this podcast, this guy had a, had a product to help SaaS companies take out costs around, I forget what it was there. And he said, pre-2022, he, you know, he talked to you know, tons of CFOs, no interest whatsoever. 2022 hit, and suddenly his phone starts ringing off the hook. And I'm curious, you know, for what you guys are doing to live, for a living, are you seeing that same dynamic where it's suddenly like, oh, wait a minute, Randy, the metrics you're talking about, I did not really worry about that, but I've got to get my hands yeah, on it now. Yeah, I think, uh, yes, I think that what you're finding is it's this interesting ecosystem movement. The VCs have always been really interested in the metrics. And so as a private company CEO, before I was at Maxio, we had to deliver templated Excel files to the analysts. And then they got wicked smart kids grinding the numbers and coming back to us and doing some of the math for us. The challenge was having a consistent definition, a regular representation. But I do think that they're uh, smart VCs and and then even in the PE construct, perhaps more so because the PE uh, model is around EBITDA leverage. And so they are much more interested in what you were describing in that tension between uh, rule of 40, rule of 35, and then rack and profitability. And so I think companies, private-backed, private VC, PE-backed CEOs and CFOs are, are getting it. 
it's part of the reason we have 2300 customers right like it's a it's a it's a, a need what i would suggest the challenge is old school cfos and i think that's my generation in particular they want to do bottoms up builds of models and they want to be able to control all the information. And so they still feel most comfortable with Excel. It's like you can't pry Excel from their cold, dead hands. And I was talking to someone yesterday about this idea of how do you, the CFOs of the future need to shift from a spreadsheet model of data entry at the sale level to a database model where they need to think about data in terms of tables. And they have to be able to let go of data in the way that they thought about QAing it within a spreadsheet. And it's those CEOs that are now moving from compliance and governance and financial reporting to being strategic partners to uh, CEOs, CROs in terms of monetization strategy. So I think there's a new breed. I think everyone's going to go there. And that's you know what I tell people is, look, buy my technology or buy someone else's. Every B2B SaaS company needs to have a system of, of billing and invoicing that allows you to get these operating metrics so you can run your business. Also, you can uh, manage your board. And But you, well, one of our old adages was uh, get funded, stay funded. When you're going through due diligence, the number one issue that kills deals is accounting issues. And it comes down to ARR. It comes down to ARR. And so that then, you know your ARR, you're able to drive all of these insights. And so I think it starts with a common understanding of data a system that allows you to make sense of it. And then a, a CFO who is curious about that and wants to drive from the back office to the front office. Well, you put something on the table there, which is important. something you and I talked about before this podcast was sort of the changing role of the, of the CFO, right? And, and, you know, I do, I mean, you've seen it, you know, more than I do, but, you know, when I spend time with these executive teams, they're all in the room and I'm listening to the questions coming from the CFO and they're, you know, it's changing. Because, because to your point, they were kind of focused on the reporting and the governance and stuff, but they do need to be a partner with the CEO around what is our profitable economic engine for this company? What is that going to look like? And, and, and I will tell you, there are a lot of SaaS executive teams that have never, ever managed a profitable software business model, right? They've always been the high Me. growth, <laughs> right? Not profitable, Right. And, and, and so now, right. And so, so think about that. You're a CFO and suddenly people are, you know, asking these questions about, well, tell me like how high is high for your operating income? What do you think that's going to look like two years from now, three years from now? And they're going, gosh, I, I've never really had to think through that. Right. And how I'm going to, and how I'm going to get there. And so I, I think that that is really, ch- that there's a new muscle that's getting built there and, and it really, and they really do need to be a strategic partner with the rest of the executive team to help get a vision around what the profitable business model is going to look like. Yeah. And I, you know, I do think, again, as kind of a private, uh, fast growing, high growth company, you can, um, Todd Gardner, another industry luminary, wrote this article, he calls it the porpoise principle, where you get profitable and then you can go unprofitable again, but you have demonstrated the ability to control it. And it just forces you to make a bunch of, you know, tighten up some controls here, do this, do that. And then it's almost like you come out and you look around and say, okay, now I'm going to invest here, but you're explicit about it. So you still could go unprofitable and you're taking down your cash, your debt, but. Well, that's a great, that's a great concept. I love that concept. And and again, it's proving that you can have the discipline and it's proving that you know, that you're saying, look, I have a viable business model here. I Here's what it is. And I can see it 
there. It's real. And you say, but hey, by the way, next year, whatever, we're going to make these investments. We're going after this new market. We're going after whatever. And, and you can you have a great story there. But but you have you have street cred where so many of these SaaS companies, they've never breached the water in your model. Yeah. <laughs> they've never yeah. had the air. Just, right? <laughs> just on that point. So my, you know, I've been at Maxwell for about a year and a half and uh, conversation with my board's great, but I come in with this VC mindset. I'm like, I want to do all these bets and this is going to be a growth bet and this is going to be a growth bet. And I got a little bit of an NPV analysis around it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is the return we're going to see on it. And they're like, Randy, <laughs> you're just like every other you know, venture back CEO. It's all about growth. And you, <laughs> right. you at least have done an MPV, right, but right. we don't believe you. What you need to do is get the core business, like make sure you've got that lockdown and you can show it's a profitable business. And that's where we framed, I changed to embracing the old McKinsey model about horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, and just isolating the core business and saying for this core business, this is the profile it needs to have. If we're going to go out and do M&A or we're going to build in another capability, this is the profile it's going to look like for year one, year two, year three. But we're going to be deliberate in terms of the gates we have. Is it working? Is it not? Will we fund more? Do we pull back? And what do we cut? And I, I, you know, I do think that there's a portfolio approach that large companies do with that when they do acquisitions. Um, they probably get a little lazy if they got a lot of cash and they can say, oh, well, we'll give it an extra year or so. But I think in this new market reality, you've got to get growth. You got to be deliberate about it. Is it going to be through organic growth, inorganic growth, you know, segment expansion, regional expansion, capability expansion? Like as the CEO and the executive team, you got to you got to be focused there. But to your point, you also the core has to be working to enable you to have growth conversations. If, you, if the core is not working, you can't talk about the other things you want to go do. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, and I think that's a new reality for a lot of SaaS companies. To be honest with you, that's that they're that they're now grappling with. You know, I made a note on this. We were talking about this in our pre-call about if SaaS companies, how to make them more profitable, what are the levers they can pull? You had a paper on it, and then I think you had a book, Digital Hesitation, which is around the new data-driven growth levers. Can you talk a little bit about those resources that people might be interested in pursuing? Yeah, and the in, in the papers out there, it's in the public domain. It's, it's called the C-Suite Playbook for Profitable SaaS. And, you know, sort of the, the executive summary, so there's like 12 plays we outline there, but there's really three big thoughts I think every SaaS company should have to improve profitability. Number one is, you know, you should be monetizing service motions. A lot of SaaS companies have given away their CS, they've given away all their support, their PS is, is break even or they lose money. And again, that was okay when it was about growth, growth, growth. But I can tell you we have all the data on it. There are SaaS companies that are very successful at monetizing their services. They're not giving it all away for free. That brings in real revenue to the business model, real margin dollars that helps the gross margin get higher, helps the bottom line. If the CFO says, hey, that's dilutive to my business, look, the math doesn't work out that way. So that's number one. You know, that's important. Number two, it's how you take the money off the table. So we call this migrating commercials. You know, you should have a nuanced model. You can have renewal specialists and customer success managers owning renewals. Uh, you can have product-led growth. The product itself could be handling some of the commercials. And so not having every transaction go through the account executive is an important thought. And then the third thought, and Digital Hesitation, the book, talks a lot about these growth levers. You know, this world and, you know, the beauty of SaaS business models is you are connected to the customer. You have data and telemetry on what you're what they're doing. The question is, what are you doing with it to feed cost-effective growth? So, for example, we have a concept: customer-led growth it means following the customer data to prioritize 
expansion, cross-sell, et cetera. And so salespeople, every day they wake up, it's not like, well, who, do I, who am I going to talk to? They should be following the data to find out who to prioritize. So that's just, you know, one example. And, and you know, AI is just accelerating those new growth levers, you know, for sure. But anyway, I recommend the paper, again, this, this, this topic of how we get profitable. The good news is there are proven practices to get SaaS businesses profitable. I mean, I'm bullish. These, these businesses are not all going to be unprofitable in the long term. Um, you can do it, but it takes building some new muscles. This podcast can come at a better time for people as they're building their fiscal year 24 operating plan and dealing with the reality of constrained capital, expensive debt, how to drive to profitability. We talked a lot about the different metrics you can use to set context for your journey, where you are today, what does world class look like, where you need to go. And I think your playbook is a great recommendation for people to read as an executive team and just talk about it. I know, for example, monetizing services is one of the things we need to think about, which we've under-indexed compared to what I was doing at Salesforce. I think the migrating the commercials and how to think about broadly the commercial relationship that you have with the customer and who does what, where, when is really interesting, especially in our business model. One of the things, just last point, and then we'll wrap this thing up, is price increase. So I saw an article somewhere that every single SaaS company now, because of the pressure on the revenue growth, they're not seeing the take up on new logos that they're doing price increases. And I know Salesforce in August came out and said they're raising prices 9% across the board. And you're like, holy smokes, it used to be you would have kind of a 4 to 6% increase embedded in your contract. You went in with six, you got negotiated down to four, but 9% is mind boggling. What are you seeing in terms of price increase, price levers broadly across the SaaS landscape? Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to our CIO about this, what, what the, you know, because we have nothing, you know, we're a SaaS shop, right? We have everything we're using is SaaS. And I said, so what are you seeing? And he is, is absolutely seeing people pushing across the table, these double digit increase asks that's that is absolutely the thing that's happening but i will i will tell you in my conversations with companies you know about the state of this so, so you know inflation over the past couple of years absolutely kind of gave us the ability to go to a customer and say hey things are more expensive you know everything's more expensive in my business model and you know and so if inflation's running six percent or whatever you know i've got a i've got a bigger price increase this year right and so i think Customers were, were, you know, understood that logic. They they were filling it themselves, and they, and they onboarded that. I am suspect about these price increases this coming year because you know inflation is you know stable here, but customers are not going to just basically onboard double digit price increases. They're not going to do it. So I think what we're going to see is that we're, is is that contracts going to come across the table to the customer and they're going to push it back. <laughs> and there is going to be some intense. I mean, that's you know that's what we're going to do, right? We're going to be like, hey, that's you know that is just too big of an increase. And I think for a lot of these SaaS companies, I mean, if if you are dominating in your marketplace and you feel super confident in your position, you know, okay, you might be able to get get away with it this year. But that's not a lot of SaaS companies, as you know. It's hyper competitive out there hyper competitive in a lot of these marketplaces. So if you're coming to the table with a, you know, 10, 12% price increase and somebody else comes in and say, hey, I can get you on my platform and I'm not going to do that to you. That's going to happen. So I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be kind of ugly. And I think that there's a, uh, 
you know, the must-have versus nice-have, vitamin versus aspirin, uh, the Oracle play where they get you and then they just stick it to you and you're resentful for the rest of your contract with Oracle until you can, I'm sorry for all the Oracle users, they provide a great product, but I think their strategies, they get you in and then they raise their, hike the prices up because they got you and the stickiness is just incredible. But I don't think that's true for lots of uh, SaaS companies, to your point, they can be replaced. And so as a as a CEO, CFO, thinking about what is your unique value that it does, it's not doesn't lock the customer in, but you continue to give value. So the, it's a value conversation versus a price increase conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, yeah, you're, you're spot on. I mean, and just to kind of put a wrapper around this, I mean, if you think about making SaaS more profitable, the first lever is I take headcount out. Now, the second easiest lever is I do a price increase. And what I'm advocating for is there's this middle ground of your overall operating model that you've got to be changing <laughs> to your point to deliver a different value proposition more cost effectively. That's the hard work. That's the hard work. And I think that there's a lot of companies that have to lean into that. Awesome. Well, that's a great way to end our conversation, Thomas. Every time I talk to you, I learn something. I really appreciate you making time for us. For other people that want to get the Thomas Law, you know, free base. What is your uh, best ways to track you down and to, to stay in contact? Yeah, I, I would say just go to uh, the, the TSI website, uh, www.tsia.com, and you can get, click into all the, the stuff we have in our webinars and our, our free content and learn about what we do for a living. Yeah, and most of it's ungated, right? You have most of your content is available for people to read. We we have a lot gated for, for for members in the different areas, but we we do have a, a good chunk out there in you know in a, in a freemium type you know model that people can take advantage of and, and and learn a lot. And then the most recent book that you've published, I I haven't read it. I'm still a big fan of B for B. I push it to everybody. But what's your what's your most recent book and the challenges you were taking on in that book? Digital hesitation, and that really is about you know having a more digital business model, which again has just become even more critical with with the AI advancements that are occurring. So I think that's a good one. And the one before that, I think for your audience would be really good is the As a Service Playbook, which is really about the plays you run to have a more profitable you know model. Awesome, Thomas. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, my pleasure. 